I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hey, Mark, great to see you. Hello, Miriam. It's great to see you, too. I'm really excited for today's episode with Dr. Vivian Ming. I am, too. She is going to bring unique perspectives based on her decades of experience in this field and others. Yeah, I think she really stands out as someone who has been involved in in, in so many different domains uh, between AI, neuroscience, uh, prosthetics of various kinds, mental health, uh, etc. And I'm really excited to hear what she's learned and what she's working on uh, across all of those very fascinating areas. Same here. Let's dive in. All right. Today, we are so pleased to have Vivian Ming on our podcast. Dr. Vivian Ming explores how to maximize human capacity as a theoretical neuroscientist, serial entrepreneur, author, and mother of two. Socos Labs, her fifth company and second co-founded with her wife, Dr. Norma Ming, is a quote, mad science incubator. It explores seemingly intractable problems from a child's disability to global economic inclusion, all for free. So something we would definitely want to ask you more about, Vivian. Her previous companies have applied machine learning to bias in hiring and education at home and in school. She began her career as a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley's Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience, pursuing her research in cognitive neuroprosthetics. And in her free time, which I don't know how she has any in addition to all this, she's working to design AI systems to help treat her son's diabetes, predict manic episodes and bipolar sufferers, reunite orphan refugees with extended family members, and writes science fiction. Not surprisingly, she was named one of the 10 women to watch in tech by Inc. Magazine and one of BBC's 100 women in 2017. I could go on and on, but I am so excited to start talking with you, Vivian. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here and always cringe inducing to listen to the brag wheel before the introduction. I will do my best to not live up to what surely must be people's mental image of the person that was willing to write that stuff about themselves. Well, we appreciate your humility and good humor and uh, really could have gone on and on with what you've accomplished. And so we uh, actually did the abbreviated version um, because there is so very much to discuss here. Uh, so let's jump in. Where and how did you begin this journey as a neuroscientist working in artificial intelligence? Uh, yeah, so the AI part uh, was pure serendipity, and the brain part was literally a coin toss. So I have a fairly unusual life in that it started off uh, pretty wonderful with a lot of good fortune and privilege, as is the term of the day. Uh, and I kind of blew it all and ended up homeless. Uh, and when suddenly my life kind of uh, found its legs again, I had the chance to go back to that same university I'd flunked out of. Uh, and I figured, what if I just did my whole undergraduate single year? I cannot tell you why I thought I could, because I had never had success like that as a student. But um, in picking very snobbishly which degrees I could finish in a whole year, it was math, economics, and cognitive neuroscience. And I thought, math, what am I ever going to do with that? Uh, little did I know. Um, so I flipped a coin, it came up heads, and so I studied brains. Uh, literally, it came up heads, so I studied brains. And then one of the first courses I took was 
Introduction to C for Cognitive Modeling. And uh, the professor of that course um, uh, invited me to become a research assistant at a place called the Machine Perception Lab, which, by the way, eventually spun off and is now the face recognition lab for the iPhone uh, at Apple. So I got to work on very, very early versions of things like the Animojis and the expression recognition systems uh, more than 20 years ago. And that was, that was where it really started. My introduction to machine learning was one, is this a good model of how the brain works? And two, the CIA giving us money to try and figure out if people were lying to them. Uh, both of which were cool as hell, both of which have profound uh, ethical implications, and both of which were right in one of the most like hyper-focused areas of machine learning today, which is facial recognition. Well, that's an incredible story and, and a lot of different strands that we want to uh, pick apart there. But since you are uh, in the unique position and have the unique background of being someone who spent a lot of time thinking about the brain and about AI, I was wondering if you could just walk us through the transformation of how people have perceived of the relationship between the brain in its structure and its function and AI systems and you know neural networks being a big part of that. But how has that changed in the time that you've been working on both the brain and uh, machine intelligence, as it were? Well, I mean, it's an interesting story, one of which is because I think we're all very myopic about AI. And by me, I mean the people involved in it. Uh, part of it is the nature of academia, right? You have a whole new crowd of geniuses show up every couple of years. They don't really remember what came next if it isn't if a book says, uh, you know, there was suddenly this revolution and deep neural networks came out of nowhere, then you just assume that that's true. You weren't there, but that wasn't how it worked at all, nor was the preceding revolutions maybe quite so revolutionary as again, we remember in retrospect. So brains and machines, uh, I mean, that's a metaphor that's gone on forever. So anyone that's been taken an undergraduate class in neuroscience, you've heard like, we have our metaphors. At uh, one time, it was uh, all about the sort of mechanical systems. You know, is the brain like a clock? Is the brain like a plumbing system? And then electricity came along, and is the brain like a circuit? And of course, in many ways, it is. I mean, it has capacitance, it, it has resistance, it has uh, measurable electromagnetical activity. But we slowly move forward in these. And you know, in the 60s, uh, someone who is sort of close to my heart since I did my PhDs at Carnegie Mellon is uh, Simon Newell, really arguably building the first sort of real world, potentially practical uh, AI, which is the theorem prover. Uh, and then moving from there to chess. And the whole, that whole industry was they studied chess experts and they built these, what are called propositional systems. So a lot of if then, that of course was the, the original days of AI. It was just a huge number, a big massive decision tree of if then statements. And they could solve, uh, they could play chess, they could solve mathematical problems. And it seemed like in the early sixties, like we're gonna have this figured out. AI and natural intelligence. I mean, this is the hard stuff, right? Playing chess. That only the smartest humans can do that. So surely everything else is going to be easy. And boy, did we get that wrong. Uh, as one of my professors said back in my undergraduate days, 
um, uh, cognitive neuroscience is essentially the study of all the problems you didn't know you had. Uh, when you actually have to build a system that can see, whether it's an expression or just see in the most basic sense or here, which is where I did my PhD research, you suddenly realize you have no idea how any of this works. It's, it's all crazily complicated. And the things that we assume are probably not good models. So are hearing systems like a Fourier analysis for the nerds? And if you're not a nerd, what are you doing on this podcast anyways? Uh, so, you know, is it like a Fourier? Well, no, actually my PhD research, I feel fairly conclusively said, no, it's something very different than that. Um, it would be if our world was nothing but bird song and piano music, but it's not. Um, and so then we start to evolve and evolve. By the time I was finishing my PhD, everyone was trying to take some kind, whether you call it a neural network or a Bayesian model or sparse coding or any of these uh, formalisms, we were trying to starting to stack them together uh, and, and figure out how we could do more and more with these. Uh, someone very kindly said of my, my dissertation research, it was the first time a learned system outperformed an engineered system, uh, in this case, compressing sound. Uh, is it a shock that the exquisitely evolved mammalian ear uh, is better at compressing sound than our rather hacky engineered systems, however well-intentioned they are? So we had this slow evolution, but along the way, whenever it turned out that those propositional if-then statements, uh, the sort of hybrid things of the 70s and 80s, the neural networks, then deep neural networks. Soon as we realized they were like never gonna wake up and prefer MSNBC over Fox, then suddenly it isn't AI anymore. Uh, and so forget about it. Like we pretend that there was never an AI industry until Jeff Hinton's lab, you know, sort of broke the mark on image recognition. But in fact, all of Google, Facebook, the ad targeting systems, the ad, uh, the, the real-time auctioning systems. Like if you took an AI course um, in the late 90s or early 80s, that was part of the courses that you were taking. Sebastian Thrun giving lectures about instant auctions as a form of artificial intelligence. Now we don't think it's that just because it's not as science fictional anymore. Um, so it's been, a, it's been fascinating to be a part of that evolution over time and seeing it is a much more gradual process that has really, I'm sure, you know, how many people were really focused in on relativity and gravitation and calculus and evolution. It's never just one person coming out of nowhere and doing this. It was really amazing being a part of this experience, particularly, as I said, because it basically just, I was there because of a coin toss and a lucky course selection. Uh, so, I, I, you know, it was a real privilege. I will say one other thing though, I was also there to watch Paul Viola demonstrate the first truly real-time face recognition system and watch during his demonstration where I could see everyone in the lecture hall except the one single black person that was there. We, you know, I saw that essentially in 1999. And he said at the time, known problem, we are gonna fix this. 
it's, uh, you know, again, for the true wonky nerds in the room, it's a hard wavelet cascade. We're still using them today, usually. Um, we'll fix this. It's just, it's the training set. The, the internet's overwhelmingly light. Remember, it's 1999. Strange that he felt it necessary to point that out in 1999. Um, and, uh, and then 10 years later, I'm the chief scientist of this company called Guild, and I've got a little bit of press recognition. And so reporters start calling me up with stories. Hey, Dr. Ming, uh, Google just labeled the black couple as gorillas. Uh, is AI racist? Okay, 10 years, clearly we have not solved this problem. I said the same thing that I say a lot nowadays. It's just like the rest of us, depends on how you raise it. Uh, if it never sees a dark skinned face, guess what it's not gonna be any good at. But then you jump 10 years into the future from there and you have uh, Joy's work at MIT and elsewhere showing that all of these same biases exist, but they aren't science projects anymore. This is deciding who the police pay attention to. It's deciding whether you get a job if you are lunatic enough to think that a company like HireVue knows what they're doing. And by the way, Guild, way back in the day, we considered buying HireVue. Um, so uh, what a change it had been had I been making the decisions there. So, you know, these, again, these stories don't never come out of nowhere. These, when I hear uh, stories like this and you hear them again and again, I, I'm just, I'm not shocked, I'm disappointed. I'm more than disappointed, but none of it's shocking because none of it came out of nowhere. Vivian, you're like the Forrest Gump of AI. You've been through so many of these consequential historic moments um, and you saw some of the exciting elements, you saw its limitations and you saw some of the harms uh, before the rest of us did. Um, I guess let's start with the innovation, the potential opportunities before we get to the darker side uh, with the um, with you've done some pretty cool things with AI uh, with your own son's diabetes reuniting refugees what what do you think is um, what, what can we expect to see with AI how can it help us in this health context and some of the uh, important ways that you've uh, you've already found and, and what do you see coming on the horizon yeah, so, um, you know, one of the interesting things is, again, I was never an AI researcher. Yes, I published some papers about developing algorithms, but it was always for a purpose. I wanted to understand a brain or I wanted to make some progress in education. And I saw a way that machine learning specifically, I don't, I can't recall whether I've done anything other than machine learning, uh, has play, could play a role. But I think that's really been valuable to me because I always saw it as a tool. Uh, I'm thrilled that there are some people whose careers are exploring the mathematical formalisms of, of artificial intelligence. I was proud of myself that I actually had a convergence proof in one of my first algorithm papers that I could actually do that math. Uh, it was a real like subtle ego stroke for me because I wasn't a mathematician because apparently I never thought I'd have to do it. Um, so. Uh, so I always viewed this as an end to a means. And those means, I quickly got hooked on the idea of doing a thing that actually helped people. Uh, I don't have, you know, if, if you want to do it purely philanthropically, if you want to start a company, if this is applied academic research, it's all good. Uh, I'm, no one is approaching this in the right way from that standpoint. What I really am talking about is, do you understand the problem that you're solving? 
Because if you think AI is going to bail you out, that it's going to figure out how to take bias out of hiring, that it's going to figure out how to treat diabetes, I guarantee you it won't just fail. It'll fail ugly. Uh, it'll fail being unable to see black women or even in there. One of my favorite, I had the sitcom. It only lasted for a season called Better Off Ted, uh, which was set in the research lab of like a giant evil corporation. And they have this episode and Better Off Ted, I don't know when it ran, but I'm kind of guessing early uh, 2000s. It was really prescient for a, a, a network television show. It had an episode where the company swapped out all of their badges through getting through all the secured doors with face recognition. What happened? It wouldn't see any of the black employees. So they were all trapped in their offices. And then what I thought was actually the real genius, not just recognizing that that was gonna be a problem that happened someday, but the solution, having started a lot of companies myself and advised a lot of other bigger ones, is their solution was to hire a bunch of white interns to follow the black employees around to open all the doors for them, um, which just feels so real to me. But that actually points to the bigger thing, which is solutions are never an algorithm. Algorithms are tools. They're a part of a solution. Um, so I, I got my start doing this very ethically fraught thing of doing lie detection for the CIA. It was an academic project. We, it wasn't secret, but that's where the money was coming from. And that was what transparently the CIA was interested in. I took that, what I learned to do there, and I built that system to help reunite orphans, refugees with their extended family members by doing facial analysis. In this case, extending it into a kind of a deep neural network and abstracting away from physical structures to more subtle, like, is your niece happy? Does she have a sense of ennui? I don't know what refugee kid wouldn't, but, you know, that it turned out that really improved its performance. But again, that was based on, you know, this somewhat challenged uh, original impetus. And then uh, I was able to actually also build a face recognition, an expression recognition system for Google Glass. Which again, you could imagine all the terrible things. If your job was invent, just invent, don't worry. You could follow the money. You could invent for invention's sake. You can imagine truly terrible things that you could build in to a, a wearable augmented reality system that could read other people's faces and expressions. Um, what is it, Clearview AI? All right, we don't need to go further. So um, I built it for autistic kids. Uh, so the system analyzed the face of the person they were talking to and created a little emoji which exaggerated their expressions. And it made it, one, it turned out much easier for them to learn how to read facial expressions. But the cool thing that I actually didn't expect, so I still didn't know the problem as well as I thought I did, it actually improved their empathy, their theory of mind. It turns out if you learn that someone's happy or sad simply by looking at flashcards with cartoon faces on them, you never really learn why they're happy or sad. We kind of get it for free by virtue of the way our brains get wired up if we don't happen to have autism. I don't know quite where I fall on that particular uh, spectrum, but uh, maybe a little closer to my son who does. And, but again, this could be a terrible technology that truly does harm in it could be a technology that literally saves lives or transforms them. Uh, and I'm not being hand wavy. Like it's not the, it's not AI's fault. AI is an evil. Uh, what I'm saying is it's a tool. It's your fault. If you built a system 
thinking through your, what I love this new term, possibilistic thinking. I can imagine a world in which this thing I'm building does good. And also I happen to get to be a billionaire. I guarantee you it's going to go wrong. Uh, you need to think, I'm going to build a system and I will only release it if the inevitable outcome is that the world is a better place as a result. Even then, it's a fraught experience. But I will say the number one flaw of artificial intelligence research and application is not understanding the problem that you're working on. These are human problems. They require true depth of understanding, which is to say, I really, really, really envy the people applying machine learning to physical systems. Uh, I think some of the coolest work is looking at like the chaotic motion of um, the cosmos or trying to build systems that predict the interactions of small molecules for pharmaceutical work. Uh, but even then, I guarantee you, knowing the system that you're working on will dramatically improve uh, the rate at which you make innovations and the performance. But in human systems, any human system, if you don't understand the problem, if you couldn't imagine how you would have solved it without AI, you will not solve it with AI. Yeah, I think that um, this is, this is, I think a, a perspective that, that we continue to, to encounter and dance around and hear different angles on is the, you know, kind of the degree to which the responsibility rests with the creators and implementers of AI systems to anticipate and then uh, preemptively mitigate these potential negative implications of their tools. And one thing that I think we've seen is that, um, you know, as you have cited in several of these examples, um, there are a lot of cases where that doesn't happen. And so this takes me to a question that we've been asking all of our guests. Uh, we have a new administration in DC. I know that your expertise is more in the scientific side rather than the, you know, inside the beltway politics and policy. But I guess I wonder uh, from the perspective of an innovator and a um, creator and a scientist, you know, what do you see as the role of government and policy in putting some guardrails around this tool? And if you, you know, we're whispering into the ear of President Biden, uh, what are the you know, top one or two things you'd uh, recommend he do? I actually got a chance to meet Joe Biden. Uh, used to be, I did occasionally get invitations, not admittedly to meet the president, but you know, when you work in AI and education, then the Department of Education gives you a call um, or the World Bank has you come in for a talk. So I got to go to the um, White House Pride celebration, one of the very first ones that they did. I actually got to, I, I have the, um, I don't know um, if it is a point of pride, but I took the first ever, maybe only ever presidential portrait with Google Glass, which means yes, I wore Google Glass to a black tie event at the White House and the Secret Service freaked the hell out. Uh, partially because they didn't realize what it was until I was already inside. I swore I asked, but clearly they didn't understand. That's a good story. I will skip it. Except to say I did meet uh, Joe Biden that time when I was there. He has the biggest, whitest teeth of any human being I have ever encountered in my entire life. But he also seems like uh, a well-intentioned guy. Uh, needless to say, I have not had a lot of attention, uh, invitations over the last uh, four years. 
So uh, here's a couple of things. And I have, I wrote a piece called One GP, One Vote. And I was really looking at artificial intelligence from the perspective of what is its impact on civil rights. And we could even take it further into human rights, but let's just start there. AI decides who gets jobs. I know this because I built that system. AI decides who gets loans. AI decides uh, who gets what kind of medical treatment. Um, I know this sounds like I'm describing some future science fictional world, but I guarantee you, every one of you that's listening to this right now, in the time you've been listening, you have been passed over for a job and you never even applied for it. Now, what does that do to your civil rights if you didn't know that they were violated? Now, I'm not saying AI violates those rights, but it creates a totally different regulatory world because you, again, don't know what's going on. If you're being targeted with job offers and uh, specialized personalized loan offers and treatments, and then you go for a second opinion with another doctor, but they're using the same AI system. So it effectively isn't a second opinion, but you don't know. All this stuff happens without us being aware of it. And yes, we can go further into policing uh, and judicial review, but we don't have to. I mean, those, all of these are already deeply, intimately fundamental parts of our lives. So uh, I laid out three large recommendations. One is specifically in the domain of public policy and the role of government. Uh, while clearly I'm a little bit more on the progressive side on many of these issues, I obviously I do believe that these things, systems could do good. That's how I spend my time. Um, but I think one role for government should be uh, empowering institutions to play a regulatory role. And I know the WHO and the CDC are not crowned in glory right at this moment, but you know I am envisioning something along those roles. Look at the hotspots of AI, be able to go in and take a look and, and really prove out whether things are being abused or not. But note what I'm saying, this should not be the purview of direct legislative action. Uh, I don't say this because I have something against Congress or state legislatures or city uh, boards, but this is an incredibly complex system. It, it would be as absurd as having uh, your, your country's legislature decide a specific drug outcome. That is not their role, nor should it be here. How could they possibly understand? And again, San Francisco said no face recognition, at least within uh, um, you know, the, the government of San Francisco itself, except I happen to be intimately familiar with some very positive uses of facial recognition. Uh, I think this is much better handled if we look at even the high levels of the executive branch and certainly legislative as oversight. And then we empower institutions uh, to actually take action. It's actually a well positioned to do this. You know, you might look at uh, Singapore as a bit of a benevolent uh, mystery as to exactly uh, the role of, of uh, a government, but the benevolent part is often a genuine part of it. And so they're incredibly well positioned to really look at the role of AI in their daily life also well positioned to abuse it, uh, which is why I, I think having that kind of watchdog status matters. Here's another one that doesn't in fact require um, uh, President Biden's direct involvement, but I think 
Congress uh, and maybe even the UN can play a role in really making this a standard. I just launched a new company uh, over the summer of 2020 because apparently I am an idiot. Um, but I, it just seemed like such a great idea and I really wanted to be a part of it. Um, and one of the things I have insisted on for our new company, two things. One, I haven't had my wish granted yet, but um, one of them is a data trust and the other is auditing. The auditing we are going to do. We will open up our books. I think what it doesn't exist yet is a strong system for doing not just data and algorithm, but both of them together. If I'm making a claim about what my technology should do, I should be willing to open up to a trusted uh, with a fiduciary responsibility to come in and not disclose what they've learned, but validate I'm handling the data the way I said I was. My algorithms do the things that I'm claiming. It's it, by number two, I personally believe most AI companies will immediately uh, fall out of the race for their market share uh, because I think a lot of these technologies are vastly oversold. Um, but here's my big wish. And I don't even know that I'm ready to do it myself, but it is to hold, uh, a lot of people talk about how data should be held in trust, you know, metaphorically in trust. How about legally in trust? Such that the data flowing into my company isn't actually owned by my company. It flows into a data trust whose legal responsibility is in fact to the people contributing the data, not to us. Maybe we might act as the trustees, if it is a corporate data trust, um, but these could be independent data trusts. Uh, there's been a big movement, for example, at Stanford, uh, Fefe Lee uh, and John Eschavetti have gone out and said, listen, there should be academic data trusts, that are, and not just data trust, but public option for computing power, because this is a thing. It's hard to see how data trusts work if someone doesn't pay for the storage and the computing to make it happen. Um, but it's storage is cheap, computing is cheap. Uh, let's put literally our money where our mouth is. And I think what we find is it's easy to say that I want to do good with my AI and my algorithms and we'll only ever do good. Back it up with we're going to put the data into a trust and we can only ever use it if the trustees agree to what we're claiming and the trustees are elected by the people contributing the data. Um, and they could say, Everything. Give me as much free stuff as I could ever have. Uh, and you can do whatever you want. Uh, I want none of my private data shared except with medical researchers. I, I'll sh I'm willing to share a little bit, but not a little bit else. Um, but here's my really big claim. This is the, I know I'm running on, I'm on my soapbox. Uh, here's our third big claim. Um, we need these systems to empower individuals. So yes, I have thought about public policy here a lot. And the one I'm an advocate for is um, I have a right to a lawyer acting in my best interest. I have a right to a doctor with a fiduciary responsibility to not disclose and treat me again in my best interest. I should have an, a right to artificial intelligence, a civil right to artificial intelligence acting in my best interest. There isn't and cannot be a true open market relationship if I never knew that I got passed over for a job or a loan or the right medical treatment or a product. Um, 
as someone that's gone through gender transition, uh, I get pitched a lot more clothes and a lot less jobs in technology now, even though I'm effectively the same person. So, uh, you know, understanding even subtle things here are wrong. So who's going to do that? Well, if we had data trusts, then I'd do it. Sokos Labs uh, would happily. We've had conversations with the ACLU and other groups, for example, about building systems to represent people in parole hearings or represent them uh, in initial uh, uh, motions for dismissal, which for almost every juvenile uh, on a minor charge, the worst thing you can do is send them to prison. I don't mean that from a moral standpoint. I mean it from a data standpoint. Keep kids out of jails. It will only ruin their lives and then ruin our communities. So you should always release them, except uh, not that AI in the judiciary has become a truly regular thing, but where it exists, it solely represents, honestly, it's paid for by the county. Uh, it represents the interests of those very county employees that are making these decisions, parole officers, judges, and prosecutors. It cannot represent me any more than the prosecutor could represent me. Uh, and that doesn't mean the prosecutor is a bad person. It just means that's a fundamental conflict of interest. So there you go. Uh, clearly not off the top of my head. Uh, three big things, uh, having empowered institutions, having auditing, and data trusts, and a civil right for them to act on my behalf. There are so many threads there that I want to follow up on. Um, I barely know where to start, but um, I do want to make sure before we close out that we get your thoughts on a, a discussion that we often have about uh, AI can only be inclusive when the group working, producing it, it at all, all these different stages uh, has diversity of every kind possible, as much as possible, uh, from those envisioning what question and problem we want to solve for to those developing the data sets to the those testing it and the end before it's publicly released. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how we could make improvements in the tech space. You've seen this from various lenses and I'm wondering um, if you have recommendations on what we could all be doing, not just government, but all of us to make tech a more inclusive community that creates more inclusive products. Oh my goodness, there is so much to be said here. In fact, there's a poster behind me called The Tax on Being Different, which is a book I'm writing about using AI to explore, not to talk about the problems with AI, but actually using machine learning to explore some of the challenges um, that exist when you're a little bit different. And some of those challenges, I mean, some of the very ways we build systems. I have a lot of good fortune. I went through transition a long time ago, and in virtually all of my life, it's never an issue. Everyone sees the person that I am, which is a privilege that a lot of people don't get uh, in their lives. But uh, turns out not the full body scanners at the airport. Um, and this changed uh, in recent years. So I got every special pass I could to, so that I don't have to go through those. Um, but in the United States, and I have to say, it's kind of uniquely in the United States. If I go through a full body scanner, then I am essentially signing up to get molested by a TSA agent because that's what comes next. Why? Because my hips are too narrow. That means I'm a threat to travel. Of course it doesn't. And if you visit TSA's website, 
they have a web page dedicated just to this that essentially says, eh, yeah, we know, sorry. Um, why was a system built based on whether your body fits a certain mold as though there are no women with skinny hips uh, rather than solving the actual problem? We can debate whether an actual problem exists, but you know, at some level one does, this clearly isn't the solution to it. And you may say that's not machine learning, but of course, I mean, it is. That's a highly sophisticated system that's turning a lot of very complicated technology into an image of a person and comparing it against a model. How is that not uh, an example of machine learning? Um, but we see these sorts of things come up again and again. Uh, actually, just a paper came out recently showing that innovation that actually touches on women's lives increases. So, uh, um, 12% increase in the number of women in STEM produces uh, a 1.3% increase in the number of female-focused innovations. But only if women are the leaders of those innovation teams, whether they're faculty or industry leaders or what have you. So just being present in the room is not enough for that change to happen. In fact, uh, a group of computational linguists at uh, Stanford had this, I just love this paper. It's exploring the innovation um, uh, uh, diversity paradox. And that paradox is, as you have more diverse teams, they do produce more energy. Everybody knows it. Research shows it again and again and again. And yet, as they found, the more diverse the authorship of scientific papers, and they like read all of them, because that's part of the amazing thing AI can do. The more diverse the authorship, innovation, novelty of ideas, like four different measures of innovation go up. The more diverse the authorship, the fewer the citations. So these are deep systemic issues. It is much like what I said about applying AI itself. If you don't understand the whole problem, you end up with half measures that as often as not actually make things worse. Uh, I could go through a bunch of them, but let's focus specifically on this domain. Uh, clearly, had more people, uh, Black or dark-skinned South Asians or what have you, been involved in the early days of face recognition, it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't have been more advances uh, in that domain. But those advances needed to come not just in machine learning. It turns out the very nature of the lenses that we use in our cameras are actually not that great for recognizing dark-skinned faces. The nature of the reflectance has been developed right from the start, uh, assuming a certain kind of reflectance and luminosity and profile. Truth is, color-wise, this is one of the things I loved when I learned this early, color-wise, hue-wise, we're pretty much all the same color. It's just the saturation uh, and the albedo and all these other things that are different between us. Um, what an interesting thing to know that there is no real color difference in the world. Uh, it's just how much color you've got. Um, mine is a little spotty, but that comes from living in cold places where you wear horns and helmets. Um, so I, you know, there are so many things that we could do, but I will say just throwing people at the problem from the bottom end. Well, let's, and I've, I've been a part of this in industry. I've been a part of it in academia. I mean, the most awkward conversation I ever had in academia was this whole department recognizing that they had almost no black students, but there was one 
So I was I was the grad rep uh, to to this um, to this council, and there was one other graduate rapper who was the one black student in the whole department. And they said we need more black neuroscientists, and literally every single one of them slowly turned to her as though this 20 something graduate student would just like magically pull new students of color out of her ass and fill up the room for them. Uh, one of the things I've seen in my research and I love it, I'm gonna throw it at you because it is machine learning research. I read all this stuff about wage gap. I got very into reading economics papers. Remember that was the other thing about the coin toss was economics. So I read probably more economics papers nowadays than I read neuroscience papers. And it's like a rite of passage for an economist to do a paper on wage gap. And so everybody has these papers, even very progressive economists like Raj Chetty um, uh, and, and others come to a very similar set of conclusions, which is it's about women's choices. Women make different choices than men. That induces the difference in wages. What they differ on is what does that mean? If you're conservative, you just say that's the way of the world. If you're a liberal, then you say, here are the programs we ought to run. I just thought that's the most unsatisfying answer. So I built a bunch of little spiders and I attached a bunch of uh, face recognition and other AI systems to them and I sent them out and I analyzed the, the prospecti and websites and, and other collected data from 60,000 companies looking for variables that were predictive of the variation in wage gap across country. Because if it's purely women's choices, you shouldn't see any variation. It should just be random, but it's not. It is highly systematic around the world. The single biggest linear predictor of wage gap was the number of female faces on the leadership team. Uh, as that number went up, wage gap went down. Is that because women put different policies in place? By the way, I am 100% convinced, but don't have the data yet, that this is true of issues of race and disability and, and other things, but I did the research for women. Uh, no, it turns out we could look and see. Um, we could control for whether there was a change in policy or a change in DNI spending. What we found was, for example, when a new female took particularly like a CEO or CFO role, wage gap dropped because the younger women in the company invested more heavily of themselves in their work. What's going on? So there's this behavioral economics concept that we've been working on called subjective utility. One is the intellectual idea. Of course I know going to an elite university, getting a great job, that will pay off in my life. But based on my actual lived experience, does it pay off for people like me? You cannot hire your way out of the, from the bottom out of that phenomenon. Because if I see no one like me successful and imagine growing up a little kid in the 70s how many trans people i might have seen who were successful nothing you were the punchline in a sitcom uh, you know high school reunion episode if you're lucky the rest of the time you're just a deviant pervert um but that's never going to be true again because now people like me exist um but it takes real work to break through those Peer effects are powerful. Uh, representation is powerful. Uh, it's not just let's get more grad students of color or as though 
people didn't know that STEM was a great career or a cool opportunity. Like we treat it like it's a marketing problem, like it's branding. Doesn't everyone know how cool STEM is? They get it. What you find when you actually talk to high performing kids that have the chance to go to elite universities and become scientists or engineers is, yeah, I could pass all the classes, but what's the point? It's not gonna change anything about my life. Uh, and so that becomes a huge predictor. And if you think I'm just talking about black kids, I am talking about my dad who grew up a sharecropper in rural Kansas uh, during the war uh, in just three years, finished at the top of his class for the entire state of Kansas, got full scholarships everywhere, and then didn't go. At least he didn't go to MIT where he always regretted not having gone. Because in the words of my grandparents, what's the point? What's the point of going to some technical school halfway across the country? What's the point of being the smart kid on the farm? So I went to uh, KU, perfectly good school, good ag school uh, and more. Tutored Wilt Chamberlain in chemistry, you know, the famous chemist. Um, and, uh, you know, Vietnam War kind of changed the trajectory of his life where he became a flight medic. Uh, a little, one little spot of good out of tragedy. Uh, but think of how much is lost to all of us that people don't think they can participate because they can't see themselves in these roles. Not because they don't understand that it could be in some other world uh, or they don't get how cool math can be or how remunerating engineering can be. It's because they, they have no evidence in their life experience that it will be true of them. If you can't break that very human messy problem, just like everything else in AI, AI won't solve it for you. So necessary to address the pipeline issues, but vastly insufficient uh, in terms of really getting us to, to where we need to be. Um, what, a, what, a, what a provocative set of, of, of thoughts there. And I mean, so much that I, I wish we had more time to unpack. Um, but I wanna, I wanna bring us to a close with a question that we, we like to ask all of our guests. And um, I'm particularly interested to hear your response because you are on the front lines of so much new development of new use cases for AI that as you've highlighted throughout the interview have incredible benefit potential, um, but also risks that need to be managed. Um, so we end with a question about the rose, the thorn and the bud of artificial intelligence. The rose is something that's great that it's happening or that you're seeing out there. The thorn something that is not so great or scary. And the bud is something coming down the pipeline that you're excited about in the future. Um, yeah, so um, for me, the rose I think has been the emergence of the idea that AI is more than just ad targeting uh, or image recognition. Uh, also recognition that just because it involves math, it doesn't mean that it's right or unbiased. Uh, I know I, what I'm, I'm re-describing some thorns as roses, but again, having been doing this for a while, uh, for people to finally recognize that there's more to this than just a kind of hacker take all ethos. Uh, and then we have some real, um, uh, real responsibility here is great because it's been lonely for a couple of decades being the person that says, really, like I remember the first data science conference I ever attended, uh, although I'm a huge snob, 
I'm not a data scientist. I'm an actual scientist. Um, but the first data science conference I ever attended, and they had 20 breakouts, 19 of which could all have been titled uh, data science for ad targeting. And then there was a 20th, which was essentially not for ad targeting. And so I thought, I guess that's for me. That must be where all the philanthropic stuff is getting done. And instead, it was people talking about using it for sports betting uh, or using it to game stock markets. So I'm thrilled that we're breaking out of that mold. Uh, and so I see that as a real rose, that we are having genuine conversations around this. However, uh, understand, like, we have been thinking about this for a little while. And I think a lot of the current conversations are still a little bit behind where the cutting edge of AI itself is. Um, so the thorn here for me is um, we're still in a world where you get a PhD in machine learning uh, by spending six years in which your advisor gives you the perfect data set. They give you ImageNet with every dog breed labeled. And then they say, here's the, what we're going to do. We're going to beat the pants off uh, the best system for dog breed recognition, which is a stamp competition. And uh, here is, is, here's all the right answers, right? So you spend six years tweaking some new architecture bigger, more parameters, talking Google and uh, funding, you know, your distributed computing work behind all this. And then Amazon hires you to build a system to reduce their bias in hiring. And they give you the perfect data set, all of their hiring history. They got a lot of employees. They got a lot of hiring history. And they give you the question, uh, did you get a promotion within your first year at Amazon? And they give you all the right answers. That's just like what you were trained to do. And you execute on that. You build an amazing deep neural network. And it will not, no matter what you try and do, hire women. And is anyone shocked about that? Well, I sure as hell am not. Because Amazon tried to hire me to run that program, amongst others. And I told them it wouldn't work. They did it anyways. And uh, end result. And this is a perfect example of we are having the right conversations, but settling on the wrong solutions. Turns out scrubbing the data doesn't help. That's exactly what Amazon tried to do. They were well-intentioned. They did want to reduce bias. They manipulated their data sets. Sending your algorithms to Narnia, where good and evil is crystal clear, is not a solution. If your data looks at real world, if your algorithms look at real world data and do the wrong thing, the data isn't wrong. That's the real world. That is the wrong that exists in the real world. It is your algorithm, not even your algorithm, your system that is failing. And we need to move beyond thinking. It's just algorithms and data and think of problems holistically. Here's my bud. And like I said, nothing's new. It's called reasoning. Uh, just six years ago at a... Um, uh, AAAS uh, working group uh, event, I got up and I said, we are trapped in a world of correlational deep neural networks that will never solve the problems the way we want them to be solved. It, even in reinforcement learning, these are still not truly causal models. They're just correlational networks that, that are very strategic about what part of the data they look at. 
Um, we need to go beyond that. The littlest baby in the world sees a light switch get it, get thrown once and is surprised the very next time that switch won't turn on the lights. They don't need to see a million examples of that happening because they have a mental model that represents the causal relationships there. Uh, obviously, this there has been a little bit of a resurgence in this space recently, but uh, when I brought this up six years ago, a professor of computer science at CMU looked at me like I was spewing nonsense. Causality in machine learning? Like, didn't you know that this has been a part of Bayesian network models for like decades? Like, this is not a new idea. But the success of deep neural networks caused like a mass uh, amnesia about where we were before they came along. Well, now we need to pick up and combine the truly astonishing computational power of deep learning with the necessary power of causal reasoning, which will bring its own thorn. I get up in front of audiences on a regular basis and say, if you're afraid of AI because you're afraid of Skynet, I wish we had that problem. We have nothing remotely like that, nothing we're building. If we just made it a little bigger, if it just read more newspapers, suddenly it would become truly sentient, there is no such thing out there. Be worried how people how people use AI. That is a serious threat. AI itself, eh, uh, other than it doing bad things, you know, things badly, I should say. But once we break through that causal reasoning barrier, I don't know, maybe then we really have to up our game when it comes to ethics, because I think then we move into a space where things are a bit more concerning. Uh, and we have to really appreciate what these systems might do. But now I finally am in the space of science fiction, which is where most of my projects launch off from. Well, it's a great space to be in. I think um, a very useful reminder that hidden inside of buds, there can be uh, thorns as well as roses. And um, you know the, the, the future is not written yet. And so it's on us to um, be thoughtful and intentional about, about our own roles in it as ethicists, technologists, and anyone else involved. So uh, Vivian, you've given us an enormous amount of food for thought. Thank you so much for being with us today. And um, just so excited to keep seeing all of the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. If anyone wants to learn more about our work, go to socos.org, S-O-C-O-S.org. People bring us incredibly challenging problems. And if we can, we help for free. Uh, and the next time we chat, uh, let's talk about neuroprosthetics, mashing up the best of what AIs can do and the best of what actual natural brains can do, because that's just as bonkers. Can't wait to have that conversation with you. Thank you so much for your time and all that you've given us to digest today. Thanks. I've had a lot of fun. Well, Mark, that was another great episode. It was so interesting to hear Vivian's very broad, diverse, unique perspectives on ethical AI. Absolutely. Vivian, uh, I think, comes at this issue with a, a kind of richness of life experience and professional experience that, that, that few people have. Um, and I just thought everything she had to say was was really thoughtful and born of experience and, and, and really um, having thought very deeply about about everything that, that, that she works on. Absolutely. I think also she said it best when she said we should have a civil right to know what AI is doing, how it's impacting us. 
Uh, for instance, if you're being passed over for a job, you won't know that. You won't know that the algorithm has excluded you or the variables for which it has excluded you, if they're even legal. Uh, so I really like that framing of this, as we often talk about, as AI being the next phase of civil rights. I think she also really opened our eyes to some of the challenges in understanding what's baked into the AI when she talked about how when she transitioned, she noticed she was getting different ads. Somehow the algorithm knew, even before I'm sure some of the people she was emailing, that she had transitioned and instead of getting job ads, she was getting clothing ads. Yeah, no, I think that that was a great example amongst, you know, one amongst many of, of, of how um, these systems really do have very differential outcomes for different groups of people uh, and how we really need to be paying more attention to that. And, and, and one thing that jumped out at me was all of her thoughts on representation and inclusion in the tech industry of people who are from historically underrepresented or underserved groups. Um, and the challenge that she gave us to think about that, not just in terms of uh, kind of box ticking or um, metrics or numbers, but also really the kind of substantive nitty gritty of not just, you know, who is being brought to the table or to the team, but in what ways are their voices being listened to and heard and, and how are they being empowered to really be as effective as possible once they're at the table. Um, so that to me was, 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 was really a highlight. Agreed. Well, a great episode and I look forward to our next one. See you soon, Miriam. Bye, Mark. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback, and if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 